Sure. Well, we're in a series. It's interesting to me that we're in this series, and the series, coincidentally, has been about plagues. And would you know it that in the midst of this series, beginning the seventh plague, we would be as a nation and a world somewhat crippled by a plague. And the question I want you to think about is an important one, because it, it helps you understand the heart of God more fully. And the question is simply this, can mercy look like judgment? Can a warning look like someone being mean? Or think of it this way, can restrictive actions be seen as a very angry reaction of a tyrant? So, when the Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte announces a nationwide lockdown, how's he viewed? When a president restricts air travel... When a league commissioner calls off the rest of the season for the NBA and then all sports groups are calling off major events, the Masters, March Madness. When a university president tells students to stay home and all education will be online, which puts in jeopardy for some their graduation. When a nursing home says no to holding a funeral for a couple who had been married for 65 years. They had been together for 65 years, and both of them die within about a day of each other. And they say, no, you can't use their facilities. That happened this last week, and it's about a funeral that I'll be doing this week. And you can look at those in different ways. Are the prime minister, the president, the commissioner, the university president, the administrator of a nursing home... Are they being mean? Are they acting like tyrants? Are they making frivolous judgments that cause pain and hardship and restrictions in the lives of people when they make such judgments? Moses stood before Pharaoh and he said unequivocally, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says, let my people go. Free my people that they might serve me. Release them so that through them... I might bring a Messiah, an anointed one, Jesus, Yeshua. Let my people go, because through the kingdom that I want to establish, I want a kingdom that establishes that you will not live as slaves under oppression and with injustice. And when I think about that, and I think about the Old Testament, just think about how often God gets a bad rap. The God of the Old Testament is looked at as being mean, ornery, and full of rage. And no doubt we don't understand some of the actions, some of the things that occur, and there are incredibly important questions. But he often is looked at as someone who is ready to explode on anything or anybody who steps out of line, even for the slightest wrong. And I just ask you, what do you think? And what I want us to really lean into this morning as we press into this seventh plague It is interesting in the seventh plague that God demonstrates incredible mercy. And I would love for you as you go through this, and you can react online if you want to, but as you go through this, just watch for all the places of God's mercy. I will probably miss some, but I want to give you some. Throughout this message, just note that. We're looking at the seventh of nine plagues. We've been saying there are a series of nine, uh, of three sets of three, and we look at the first three. It begins before the first one, where there's a demonstration of power, where 
where Moses comes before Pharaoh and just demonstrates this is what's going to happen. And he takes his staff, the staff of God, staff of Moses, and it turns into a snake. The magicians do the same thing. But the one thing that was different is that the staff of God eats the staff of Moses, of, 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 of the people, of Pharaoh and magicians. And there's this kind of this idea that your little cobra god, which was an important god in their day, you can see that as you see insignias throughout ancient Egypt, is no match for the god of the Hebrews, Yahweh, the god of the universe. So these first three come, there's economic sanctions, he's trying to get their attention through these first three, and then he, it ends in that first one with the finger of God, they can't do it, the magicians can't do the last plague, and they said, that's surely the finger of a God, they're acknowledging it's beyond them, and then there's a, a second set of three, which in a sense is really a stepping forward with the fourth, a declaration of war, now that you don't pay attention to the economic sanctions, Pharaoh, we will move into this, and at one point in one of the plagues, he says, now, if you thought my finger, the economic sanctions were bad, you will now experience the hand of God, the flick of my finger will be nothing like the slap of my hand to get your attention, and today we move to the last of the three, beginning with the seventh, where war has been declared, but now God says, that he will unleash a full-scale attack on Pharaoh to bring him to his knees so that Pharaoh, what God's people go, so that they can do what they've been created and intended to always do and be. And that's to serve and worship God. And in it is not about just the Hebrew people, but through it, through Jesus and the life he gives to all is a message that he says to all people. I have come because you are going to serve and you're going to worship something in your life. You're just made that way. But the only one that will bring you freedom, the only one that will move you from a place of of an identity of being a slave and a victim in life is the one that places yourself under me and your identity through Jesus Christ. And as, as Moses is making clear for the people of Israel, you are sons and daughters of the Most High King. And if you want freedom and you want life, you will worship him or you will cower in fear when you hear of diseases and pestilences and rulers that are stronger than you are, and economies that could be a tanking. But he says, I want you to recognize this. So we come to the seventh plague, and, and God steps in, if you look at it this way, to contain and mitigate the epidemic of sin. And he puts in place, in a, in a sense, draconian measures in ways that we don't maybe understand, but it's for the greater good. And it causes us to say, how do we view this God? Imagine a church, as we talk about, that does whatever it takes to help people know this God. Help people know they truly are able to, as they acknowledge their limitedness, they acknowledge their selfishness, they acknowledge their sin, and they serve not the idols of this world or our hearts, but says there's a God that we will worship and serve that can free us to be sons and daughters, and you can live in the blessing and love of God. Well, that's what this is about. And this is, this, this, this plague is the longest description of all the plagues. It's found also in Psalm 78, verse 47 and 48. It's found in Psalm 105, 32 to 33. It kind of mentions this part of the plague. So I'm going to read to you Exodus 9, 13 through 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your, and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 
For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. You begin with verse 14, and this idea, he says, go early in the morning. This is something that happens at the beginning of each of the set of plagues. He goes early in the morning, the first plague, the fourth plague, and the seventh plague. That's what starts him off. He goes early in the morning, goes to the Nile River, which was their one of their main gods that was of health and wealth and supplied through the flood all the grain and everything else that made them rich as a nation. And he, he came down there, and, and he says, confront him, take up your position. You don't have to really do anything. You just have to declare my word. And so we find this now in the seventh one. And this is, if you go back, this is truly the ninth time, not just the seventh, the ninth time that God comes to Pharaoh and to the court and to the people of Egypt. And then he goes on, or if you you don't let them go and worship me, this time I will send the full force of my plagues, verse 14, and against you and your officials and people so that they may know there is no one like me and all the earth, I'm going to establish and make it very clear that in this full force of war, you will know that I am the God of all gods. And there's a sense of divine impatience finally at this point in, in, in seven. It, 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 it's like he's getting impatient now, just a bit with Pharaoh. So he says, you will see who I really am. Not one of your gods will measure up to me. And even in that statement, there's kind of a, a, an aspect of mercy because it, it harkens to the very first command that God gives to Moses and to the people of Israel when you go to the Ten Laws. The first one is, don't put any other God before me. And he makes a, a statement like this because he, he understands that when... It's not that God is some megomaniac who just wants everybody's praise and worship. It's because if you don't, it's the way you've been wired. It's, if you don't, you will find when push comes to shove and things get tough, that you will find the God that you've invested in, whatever it is, it's your 401ks, it could be your health, it could be your sense of security in a relationship, whatever it would be, that can be taken from you. But there's one thing that cannot be taken from you, and that is your God. And in a time like this, that's a message of hope. It's not a restriction of a selfish God. Because he wants all people to know this. He wants you and me to go and to love the people around us and to share with them this hope. Hey, guess what? Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen on Wall Street. We don't know what's going to happen with our hospitals and health systems. And yes, we have deep concerns about that. And yes, we will act in ways that are shrewd and irresponsible. But yet we also have a hope. And that hope is our God. And he continues in verse 15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and, and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you out. God's revealing something unique here in one sense. He's saying, I want you to know that I have withheld judgment. I've given you measures of judgment, but I've withheld a final judgment. And I could have done this. It's if God is saying, don't you understand that I could have easily wiped you out? Don't you realize that these incremental strikes are evidence of my patience and goodness? So one thing I want you to think about and, 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 and to kind of meditate upon is... God's mercy through patience. That's, that's what you see in the very beginning of this. God, in mercy, demonstrates again and again his patience. He prolongs Pharaoh's life. He, he had just caused to take it, but in mercy, he shows patience. He gives him opportunity after opportunity to come back to his senses, to think again. But through mercy, he has patience. And so know this, God, full of mercy... His delays are not evidence of any weakness, but they are his patience 
and his kindness and his goodness. And so you may want to take a note on this and say, where God, are you being merciful to me in what area? And God, where are you calling me to be more patient? I, I can be so quick. I can be so quick to be impatient with others. It amazes me sometimes I will have learned something and maybe it's just a few years later and it's a, a, even a spiritual truth and I can become impatient with others who were just like me a couple of years back. You ever done that? And God is saying, I'm a patient God. Show mercy. Exodus 9, 16 through 19, he goes on, he says, but, I, but I've raised you up for this very purpose. In, in fact, the scripture there could actually be, and I'll get into this, could I, you have set yourself up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against the people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time, tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt, and from this day until it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person, an animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. I will just quickly share this point of mercy. You see, once again in mercy, God will use the proud, the evil heart of Pharaoh to show all people his mercy so that maybe some would turn to him. What you have here is a mercy through sovereignty. God takes the stubborn resistance of Pharaoh and uses it for his purposes. I said I was going to comment on that verse 17, where he says, I have let you live for this very purpose. He says, you still set yourself up against my people and will not let them go. And the word still set yourself up against is a very unusual Hebrew form of this word. And it's found only here in the, in the Bible. It could have just as easily said you exalt yourself or you set yourself up, and here's the word, as an obstructionist. And the mercy of God is saying, again, because God can bring his glory, he can make himself known to all kinds of people, even when someone sets themselves up to obstruct his will and purposes. He can take a pharaoh. God can take the pain and the wounds and the vicious attacks that could be meant to destroy you or to hurt you or to harm you. And through his mercy, he is sovereign. His mercy through his sovereignty is able to take any situation, any person, any obstructionist. And the place we see this the most is in the life of Jesus. There is no person on earth who experienced the obstructionist powers of Satan through the people and leaders of Israel against him. No one has ever been treated so unfairly, so inhumanly, so viciously executed, so isolated and left alone. He lived a perfectly loving life, Jesus did, and yet God, our Father, has used the life of Jesus to transform the world. And what was meant for evil, God used to bring about a world of eternal good because he shows his mercy through sovereignty. Because what might be meant for evil, even in your own life, God in his mercy can turn it around for good. God can take, think about this, God can take what's happening right now because he is sovereign and he is good and use all this for good. God is a God who transforms. However, Satan has used people to hurt you or wound you, whether they have intentionally or consciously done this or whether they have wounded a person merely by living out their hurt. You know, we say hurt people hurt people. What's incredible about the gospel, about a relationship with God, is God through Jesus can take that very wound, that very hurt, 
and through forgiveness and through healing work can actually take that very wound and use that in the lives of others for good. And you see that in so many different ways illustrated. I remember years ago when I heard the story of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and I heard the story given about how this woman had their daughter taken by um, this person who wasn't even aware but killed her daughter and how she took all the energy she had and with the power of God began a movement that said this has got to stop and took the very wounds and made a difference in the lives of many people. Romans eight twenty eight says it this way, we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan, upbringing of bringing good into our lives. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. As you go on and we see in Exodus chapter 9, 20 through 26, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord, hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and their livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt and on the people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. And when Moses attached, uh, stretched out his staff and toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground so the Lord rained on hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. And throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. And you see again this picture of God, this time his mercy through grace. Through simple trust, God says, if you will obey my word and listen, I will bless you. I will protect you. He already makes a distinction with his own people who have been called to be his sons and daughters. And he, in the land of Goshen, sets a protection. And once again, they're protected because of their trust. They're just obedience in relationship to God. God, in mercy, shows grace. Not anything they did. And he reveals this again and again. If Pharaoh won't listen... And if Pharaoh's cabinet of magicians won't take and heed God's warnings, God now gives everyone in Egypt an opportunity to listen and experience his protective care. You have to understand that people have been watching this contest, and they're watching their gods, the Egyptian gods, against the God of the Hebrews. They're seeing right now the score. The score is actually God and, and the Hebrews and Moses, six, and the people of Egypt and the cabinet of magicians and Pharaoh, zero. And, and now at this point, they have a choice to make. They, they have a choice to, to actually fear God and get protection within shelter or not. Because the next attack is by air, it's hail. The Lord said he would thunder and, and he would send hail. And lightning would flash down. There's recorded instances throughout antiquity of, of major hailstorms that have, that have caused incredible damage, but there is none that has caused the kind of damage that this has caused. And in fact, hail in, in Egypt is a rather rare thing. It doesn't happen so often. So because it actually happens is another just click to the fact that God's serious here. 
Hailstorms in Egypt are so rare that they would only occur in January and February, which is, again, another time marker in this thing. And he says it's the worst storm in the land since it had become a nation. You could say, in a sense, as he's now going against one other god of the Egyptians, this god, the god named Newt, was the sky goddess. So God says, I actually rule the air. I, I, I have this air attack, and your god can do nothing. He's he, he, powerless and ineffective. I remember last year, some of you remember, we had a hailstorm, and it was out west of Delano, and they said there were a hail that were the size of baseballs. I was back here in the city, and we didn't get that kind of hail, but my home is more in the Independence area, so it's on that way, and in our yard, when I came back, we already, we still had marble-sized hail. My wife was in the basement, and she said she she thought we were under attack. It hit the, the roof so loud, she called me. And, and when she went out to look, they were like golf-sized hail. And, and our, our roof was decimated. We have a little shed, and it was completely destroyed. And, and I thank God for insurance. But what was interesting in that whole thing is I thought to myself, can you imagine if you were standing outside and got hit by one of those baseball-sized hail? Well, that's what's happening in Egypt. And, and God says... Except in the place of of Goshen. And one other thing. Here is God's grace. Mercy through grace. And and those of you who want to just go ahead and find some protection and bring all your cattle in there. And you're not. You're not in Goshen. You're not. But if you do that, I'll spare you. But if you don't, you will come under my judgment. And it says the officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Here's what's so amazing. God gave that as a free gift. That was grace. Mercy is withholding what you deserve. Grace is giving you far more, in a sense of goodness, than you deserve. And they didn't deserve that. But God said, if you do it, the reason I'm doing all this is because I love you and I want you to come under my leadership. Even you, those of you who are Egyptians. And he says, here's the thing, it's free. I mean, there's no, you know, I need 20 grand from you. There's no sense of, of I, if you would just put in 15 hours of community service or in some way, if you would just perform the way um, I want you to perform, if you're just good enough and you do just if these eight things, that he just says, just trust me. And the word they use is so interesting. It just says, and they feared the Lord. They were beginning to see six to zero. And in their mind, if you're going to make a bet, who are you going to go with? Newt, the God of Egypt? Or with Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews? And, and a number of them said, you know, I'm betting this time on the God of the Hebrews. I fear his strength and power and who he is more than I do Newt and Pharaoh. Proverbs 1.7 is a great verse. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What I find interesting about that is fear of the Lord is not the end or outcome of wisdom. The end and the outcome is incredible blessing and intimacy and walking with God and knowing God and, and, and experiencing as you go through your day. The verse says it's the starting place. It's the indispensable beginning. And I believe the foundation of wisdom. It is a reverent sense of awe of how powerful and good and merciful this God is. And it opens the door for God to work in your life. So a person, in a sense, begins to get smart when he or she 
fears being at odds with God. Think about that. You begin to get smart when you start going, oh, I don't want to step out of God's will. I don't want to walk in his displeasure. The intelligent person, says the word of God, recognizes his or her well-being lies in being in harmony with God and what God says and wills. There's an author who, um, I, I really love his works, he's no longer living, but his name is Dallas Willard, and he writes at one point, God is not mean, but he is dangerous. It's the same with other great forces he has placed in reality. Electricity. I mean, I, you ever work on electricity? I'm, I don't do, I'm scared to death. Nuclear power. For example, they're not mean, but they are dangerous. One who does not, in a certain sense, worry about God simply isn't smart. And that's the point of this verse. They feared God. They began to take the first step of being smart in their life. And I am, am speaking, I know, to someone right now, and you're going, yeah, I have been walking out of God's will, I know it. I've been displeasing Him. I have not. Um, I have not walked with a sense of reverence and understanding of who He is. And God, in His mercy, comes in grace, and He says, "You know, it's not about anything you do. I'm not asking you to do all kinds of cartwheels to get back into my goodness. I'm just asking you to begin to trust Me, and to fear Me, and to become smart." Because God's deepest desire is that every person experiences love and grace. And he wants everyone to live under the shelter of protection and blessing. And the first step of recognizing this is recognizing who God is and seeking to live in, in alignment with his word. The last part was to go through Exodus 9, 27 through 30. And then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned. He said to them, and the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. I almost can hear him saying, I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, Moses, would you? For we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. And Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the Lord, the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials will not and still do not fear the God. This time, it's what I call mercy through forgiveness. I mean, it's, this is a hard one to understand. God demonstrates his mercy whenever you repent. It's amazing. He's repented now three times. This time, he does so half-heartedly. He's almost like an alcoholic promising his wife that he'll come home on time, and he, he will make sure he's not angry and all the other things. He's serious about having blown it, but he's not serious about dealing with his addiction. And it forces a question, so... Pharaoh says sin, and the word sin here is missed a mark. He's not, he's not really saying I'm culpable and guilty. He's just saying I made a mistake, which is a big difference. And he says, I've sinned, and please would you be merciful, and God, would you forgive me? And God forgives him, and it forces the question, what was Pharaoh addicted to? And it's probably the same thing that all of us can be addicted to. It was his need to be in control. It was his self-determined pride and will. It's the hardest thing for us to truly repent from. Pharaoh and only Pharaoh would be the boss of Pharaoh. Nobody would be his boss. Not even the God who just has said, I want you to know I'm the creator of all this. I'm the one who gives you even your breath. And the breath that you are breathing right now is a gift from God. And what's amazing is this God not only gives grace, but in mercy he gives forgiveness. You would, you would think that God would say, forget it after this seventh, really ninth time. 
But here's what's interesting. When you pause and you turn to God, he turns you in mercy, even when you turn to him half-heartedly. There's a verse in scripture in Luke um, where he says, you know, repent again, repent seven you know, times, keep, and a person comes to you, then you forgive him. And you go, how do you do that? Well, we can't do that in our own strength. Only God can show that kind of mercy. But he can give us that strength to do that. So when you pause and turn to God, he turns to you in mercy, even when you turn to him half-heartedly. But when you turn to God with your entire heart and place your entire will into his hand, God turns to you and gives you his entire heart. He says, I am for you. I am for you. Even though someone obstructs you, I am for you. Exodus 9, 31 through 35. Little parenthetical phrase here. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had... Had, had, uh, had come to head and the flax was in blossom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they uh, ripen later. This is a note that's important. Um, it's a little parenthetical addition that I think is a fascinating because it gives you a couple important points. First, these words are vivid detail giving a glimpse into the economy of Egypt. It explains why this disaster was not complete. It took out two of the four crops. In Egypt, barley ripens and hay blossoms in the month of January, February, right when the hail came. The wheat blossoms at another point. Not only does it show a vivid detail of their their actual agricultural life, it also shows an incredible mercy of God because the wheat was where their great wealth was. In fact, archaeological writings show that up to the time of Rome, from this time some 1,500 years later, Egypt was considered the grain belt of the world. Wheat was their main export. Their economy ran on this. And God was yet not wiping that out. Because in his mercy, which comes through kindness, he was giving still some people an opportunity to turn to him and to think again. So verses 32 through 35 says, Then Moses left Pharaoh, And went out of the city, and he spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail had stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He had no fear of the Lord. He ignored God. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. There are all kinds of evidence and expressions of God's mercy in my life. I can just sit down and start numbering those, and I do that often in my time in the morning. I just go, here's what I'm so thankful for. Because your mercy has this incredible way of marinating my heart. Your patience, your sovereignty in turning things around for me, The way that you, God, can, through grace, give more than we could ever expect and then forgive me again and 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 again. And And he can do the same through you. And then he comes with kindness because he wants to even use our lives because there are still people that he wants to give hope to. There were still people in Egypt he wanted to give hope to. I just want to ask a few questions as I close. I'm going to get really personal. What will it take for your heart and our hearts as a church congregation to seek him with our whole hearts? Not saying that we aren't. But I want us to think of that question. What does it mean for us? 
God demonstrates his mercy again and again. Many times he did to Pharaoh. Are you in a place where God is saying, you know what, you need to extend mercy. You need to be kind. Have you experienced wounds and hatred of others? Have you been in a place where you're living with some bitterness and woundedness and God is saying to you right now, I really want to come in and make a difference. I I encourage you, we have a a ministry that I think is so helpful in this. Both our counseling ministry and our gateway prayer ministry are incredible places where you can find breakthrough and to move through those kind of things. And if you're in that place, I encourage you to find that. It's an incredible help. And then I ask you, where do you keep repenting? And you maybe feel powerless to change. The mercy of God comes again and again and again. And and I can't tell you, you're not meant to do this alone. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have counseling. That's why we have places where we say we can come alongside. Because as you begin to understand what creates that, I promise you in Jesus it can be healed. So I'm closing with this thought. It's something that I've been thinking a lot about. We've been talking about praying for people and caring for people and sharing about God and his love. And I want us to do that. But these words have been coming into my heart in a really significant way. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do in this coming week. This coming week, would you live, listen, and love? That's, that's how I want you to think about this. We are in a moment in history. We have a moment in this time where God is like the plagues that we're talking about. He's knocking on hearts. And they're, they're feeling the conviction of God. I'm going to ask you to do these three things. Live. Live in such a way that you don't live in fear, but you, you live in the peace of God. You begin to demonstrate the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control. Live in such a way that you have fruit that makes your life attractive, that people go, what's going on? And then I ask you to listen. Listen to the Holy Spirit as you move into places, and keep your eyes open to look to see what he's doing. Who he, might he be moving around you? And the last is to love. What a gr- That's what we're called to do, folks. We, we talk about a church, you know, imagine a church that does whatever it takes, whatever it takes, that we might go ahead and serve those in this West Metro so that they might know who Jesus is, that our serving that is done in his name would bring glory to him. And that can be in so many ways that God's calling you to love. Think of it practically. It may be there's an elderly person you know who needs food. It may be that God is calling to you to be a part of what we're going to do this uh, every Monday, this Monday through Friday at noon to 1230. We are going to come in here and staff and we're going to hold through live stream just like this time of prayer. You can tune in at 12 noon or you can tune in anytime after or the next morning and be a part of it. I'm calling us as a church to pray. My guess is many churches are moving into prayer so that we can live, listen, and love. We're going to end this by um, hearing this uh, song of doxology, a praise to God. So thanks so much. God bless you.